So for those of us on UK time, uh, good afternoon um, and welcome to uh, week four here at the University of Oxford. That's week four of our autumn term. Um, and this is the fourth uh, uh, seminar in our Modern South Asian seminar series. Um, we uh, in this series um, are very grateful to draw on support across the University of Oxford, but I'd like to give special thanks to Professor Imre Banga, who is the convener of the series, and also to Claire Salter and Stephen Mine for their administrative support from the Asian Studies Centre at St Anthony's College and from the Contemporary South Asian Studies programme in the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies. And the latter is the programme that I direct. My name is Kate Sullivan Destrada, and I am the Associate Professor in the International Relations uh, of South Asia. Uh, and today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Habiman Jacob, um, who is Associate Professor. Uh, I'm just getting a, a, a comment from somebody saying they can't hear me. Could somebody else let me know if I'm, if I'm audible? I can hear you. OK, well. <laughs> Dr. Jacob is the one who counts, so he can hear me. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Habiman Jacob, uh, who is Associate Professor of uh, Diplomacy and Disarmament at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Uh, Dr. Jacob teaches nuclear disarmament, Indian foreign policy and national security and international relations. Um, and I think he's uh, particularly well known for his work on the India-Pakistan uh, relationship where his books uh, Line of Control and Line of Fire um, stand out as really unique contributions to our understanding of that bilateral. Um, I think what really strikes me about Dr Jacob's work is that he's one of the few scholars of Indian foreign policy who writes from the region and for the region rather than for US or Western European policy consumption and I think that really um, makes his work stand out as quite unique in its objectives and its arguments. And of course, the other really unique dimension to his work um, is his sort of very hands-on uh, field work. So traveling along the line of fire with uh, both the Indian and the Pakistani armies as he narrates in his uh, book, The Line of Control. So we're really excited to have um, you with us, Dr. Jacob. Um, uh, we're also very excited to be adding with this uh, event another of your many videos, uh, because of course you are a, a prominent public uh, intellectual, a columnist for the Hindu, and also you have a very popular series uh, hosted by The Wire uh, under the rubric of national security conversations. So um, carrying on a number of conversations you've been involved in in the past, um, we'll hear from you today on domestic audience costs and foreign policy making in India, recent shifts in the BJP strategy, um, Dr. Jacob will speak for about 40 to 45 minutes um, and then we'll have time for just a small number of questions. So if anybody wants to um, uh, put their questions in the Q&A box, I will monitor those as Dr. Jacob speaks and select two, two or three of the most hard hitting to raise at the end of his talk. So without much further ado, Dr. Jacob, over to you. Thank you, Kate. Um, um, thank you so much uh, for that for that very generous and uh, kind introduction. I'm in fact very delighted. Good afternoon to all of you. It's it's evening here. Uh, good afternoon to anyone um, joining me from from New Delhi. I'm, I'm delighted and honored to speak at the South Asia seminar series at the Saint Anthony's College. I'm grateful to uh, Professor Kate Sullivan and Professor Imre Banga for their uh, very kind invitation. Um, had it not been for COVID, it might have been possible for me to be there in person, my loss entirely. Um, so as the title suggests, I should put my timer on as well. Um, as the title suggests, um, I will focus on the interplay between um, India's foreign policy um, and audience course uh, for the current government in India. I will do so using two uh, contemporary examples. Um, so. Traditionally, in India, foreign policy didn't really matter in domestic politics. Uh, or put differently, uh, foreign policy pursuits were more or less kept aloof from uh, domestic politics, as it were. Uh, foreign policy gains uh, did not get you any votes, as it were. But major foreign policy losses would cost you votes. 
Um, traditionally, foreign policy was uh, rarely used in election campaigns and uh, really did not resonate with the public as it were. Um, so as a result of this, uh, the political elite uh, was not particularly focused um, on esoteric topics uh, such as foreign policy and defense policy. Uh, this has traditionally, I would say, instilled a certain amount of uh, foreign policy uh, conservatism in the Indian political class. Uh, now, if you um, add uh, uh, this, uh, add to this the small number of career bureaucrats in the country who, by training and socialization, have not been particularly creative or proactive, uh, what you get is even more foreign policy conservatism. Um, having said uh, that, I should also say that since the uh, 1990s, um, constituent units or the Indian states um, have started to influence the. Indian unions, the central government's foreign policy uh, making uh, um, in a more um, sort of assertive manner. Um, I, I should clar clarify this. It's, it's Their intervention was more prominent and pronounced in the uh, foreign economic policy making than in the um, strategic or national security realm, as it were. Um, however, um, in contrast to the um, uh, permissive conditions under which, say, for example, the Canadian, Swiss and the German constitutions where the provinces were allowed to engage in foreign affairs with a certain amount of restrictions, the Indian constitution does not provide for subnational engagement in foreign affairs at all. And it's very clear about that. Uh, so despite the constitutionally sanctioned preponderance of the Indian Union over foreign policy matters, the center has often been restrained by states from making foreign policy uh, unilaterally. Uh, and I'm saying all of this uh, by way of a background, as it were. The, and there are four or five reasons as to why the, uh, since the 1990s, the Indian states started playing a certain amount of role in the country's foreign policy making. One, because of the special constitutional status uh, given to some of the Indian states, like Jammu and Kashmir, which of course doesn't exist anymore, as you know, uh, the political weight of certain um, state leaders. Um, so they have a certain amount of indirect influence on the uh, center's foreign policy making. And thirdly, uh, the phenomenon of coalition politics empowering regional parties, as it were, also had a certain um, uh, impact on uh, the the, the uh, states, uh, the centers foreign policy making. Um, then, of course, the globalization induced changes uh, because the investments were sought by Indian states and not necessarily always by the center. Um, you had a situation where the states were able to influence the um, central government. And and finally, the border states of India, uh, Jammu and Kashmir, the northern northeastern states, southern state like uh, states like Tamil Nadu, were also able to influenced the central government's foreign policy um, since the 1990s. Uh, but as I said earlier, all of this was done in a very informal way. And also, uh, there was very little strategic or uh, national security content in such intervention. It was mostly at the foreign economic uh, uh, policy making level. Now, um, and so here I come to the, say the last 10 years. Let's take a look at the last uh, six to 10 years time, and you will see Things have changed over the years, um, and, and because of uh, because of at least two prominent reasons. One, uh, the spread of internet and access to information um, in various Indian languages. Uh, say, for example, in the in the year 2020, India has nearly 700 million internet users across the country, and that's a huge number. Um, so these people are now um, uh, sort of um, in a position to understand. Quote unquote, um, India's foreign policy engagements to some extent. And secondly, the politicians today are increasingly keen on politicizing foreign policy um, um, for their own domestic political gains. So because foreign policy didn't figure in domestic politics, domestic political calculations didn't really shape foreign policy calculations and pursuits. And as a result, audience costs did not matter beyond a point earlier. But now that is changing. Today you have audience costs making a difference as far as India's foreign policy making and calculations are concerned. So unlike ever before in India's history, domestic political calculations and audience scores dictate the shaping of the country's foreign and security policy. Under the BJP government today, key foreign and security policy pursuits are often not undertaken, if I put it that way, for their own sake, but to cater to domestic electoral outcomes and 
to spin convenient political narratives. So as a result um, of the domestic politicization of foreign policy, there is today a breakdown of the broad foreign policy consensus that previously existed in the country. Now, I do not, I do not want to overstate that point, but I would say that uh, on the one hand, the, the larger population, the wider population was not too concerned about um, foreign policy making um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a rule, um, as a general rule. And on, on the other hand, the Indian leaders were more focused on winning the next elections or domestic political matters. They were not really keen on focusing on the esoteric affairs such as foreign policy, defense policy, national security, etc. And as a result, um, uh, there was a certain amount of consensus, broad political consensus in the country on uh, political issues. And that is clearly changing. Um, so the because of the domestic politicization of, um, um, as I said, um, foreign policy, you have this consensus that is breaking down uh, today. Uh, so while traditionally foreign policy had little impact on domestic political outcomes today, given the manner in which external behavior of the country has been domestically politicized, the leadership seems to weigh the domestic cause while making foreign policy decisions as it were. Uh, now, the Indian diaspora is also effectively utilized by the current government, the BJP-led government, as never before. The party and the government speaks directly to the diaspora, uh, especially in the United States and in Europe, and national honor of the country is a major ingredient in that sort of conversation. We often see the Indian leaders, uh, the BJP leaders, go abroad and talk to the diaspora as if they were Indian citizens with voting rights in India. Um, many of these arguments that they make abroad are intended to sort of uh, 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 sort of uh, appeal to the um, uh, uh, diaspora community abroad. But often enough, interestingly, the message is intended for domestic audience at home. They are speaking to the diaspora communities, but the message is for audience back home. So the huge diaspora receptions where the host country's leaders um, like say Barack Obama or uh, Donald Trump are present are sold back home in India as major foreign policy achievements. So, so what, what, what is the puzzle in all of what I'm trying to say? So I think one of the, one of, here, are, here are the puzzles in, in sort of what I'm trying to say. Uh, one of the striking features of the Modi government's foreign policy is its appetite for risk taking. So quite unlike the uh, most of the previous governments, say, barring perhaps the exception of uh, uh, Indira Gandhi government, um, um, you have a government that is in power that is keen on taking risks. Uh, it has a clear uh, majority and it, it seems to play, it wants to play on the offensive uh, and, and undoing sort of the decades old defensive Indian strategic behavior. So New Delhi's actions, for example, at Doklam, um, this vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, its surgical strikes against Pakistan in 2016, and the Uri after the Uri terror attacks, um, and the Balakot air strikes um, last year in the wake of the Pulwama terror attacks, are all examples, um, in many ways, of this newfound offensive streak and risk-taking tendency uh, within the government today. Now the question is. What is notable is that the, this risk-taking is sort of unprecedented in many ways uh, and without much worry about the potential audience costs associated with it. How, how do you explain that? In my, I mean, that's, to my mind, that's, that's a major puzzle that needs to be explained. Secondly, traditionally, as I said earlier, um, Indian leaders shied away from using foreign policy for domestic political purposes. However, the BJP government has broken that tradition. Um, uh, what explains uh, this uh, breaking of that tradition? Third, how is it that Mr. Modi's approval ratings soar despite major foreign policy and national security failures? Like, I mean, you know, I have written about it in the past, but look at the look at India's neighborhood policy today. Look at the uh, LSE state, line of actual control standoff with China today, unsuccessful Kashmir policy, and very little headway with Pakistan uh, on, on bringing peace to Kashmir. These are all, in my opinion, failures. And yet, Mr. Modi's and the BJP's approval ratings are, um, are soaring and not going down. What explains this? Uh, now, here is where I am trying to bring in the audience course argument. 
uh, say, uh, roughly defined as audience cost, roughly defined as the domestic price a leader would pay for making foreign threats and then backing down. Um, so the argument being that concern over a nation's reputation pushes voters to sanction leaders who make empty threats because they tarnished the nation's honor. In the Indian case, as I said, uh, as I pointed out earlier, foreign policy did not play a huge role in domestic politics earlier, but it has now started playing a major role uh, in the recent years and far more prominently under the BJP, after the BJP came to power in 2014. So to recap, foreign policy pursuits are undertaken by the BJP government with an eye on domestic politics. Foreign policy achievements are used for domestic political gains. Now, while the theory um, of domestic cause uh, talks about making threats and backing down by leaders, not so much attention is paid to how leaders and governments sometimes willfully avoid acknowledging external threats since doing so can cost can be costly in some cases. So in such situations, I'm going to describe that uh, in a minute, in such situations, the government might simply refuse to acknowledge the presence of, a, of an imminent threat um, or an existing threat, as it were. So let's look at the two cases that I have in mind. The Pulwama terror uh, attack um, uh, last year in 2019 and the India-China military standoff on the line of control uh, and what happened thereafter. Um, the events that let's, uh, the events that followed the 2019 Pulwama terror attack in Kashmir showed that how the BJP government adopted an aggressive posture towards Pakistan in tandem with a carefully choreographed domestic political narrative to suit its forthcoming election campaign, the May uh, election, the national election in India last year. However, the recent um, Sino-Indian military standoff on the line of uh, actual control in 2020 tells a completely different story. The BJP-led government, as I said earlier, refused to acknowledge the extent of incursions made by the Chinese People's Liberation Army on the Sino-Indian border, given how such an acknowledgement would have been politically costly for the ruling party. So let's let's examine the first case um, in, uh, in in some more detail. Um, so. This happened in the, the, the Pulwama terror attack happened in uh, February 2020, close to the national election, and it would have been tough for the government not to, to do anything. So the BJP government grabbed the opportunity to carry out a strike against Pakistan, um, a, a military strike against Pakistan. Much of what unfolded thereafter, including the rela release of the captured pilot, the, the Indian pilot who was, was captured by the Pakistan, uh, by the Pakistani side and it was released thereafter, all of that was used astutely by the party for political gains, that how it forced the Imran Khan government to hand him over to the Indian side. One could say that it made certain threats and followed them with, um, with, with proper action. Between February 2019 and June 2019, if you actually do a bean counting, the key BJP leaders, key BJP leaders invoked last year, between 2019 February and 2019 June, they invoked Pakistan around 19 times in major election speeches, major campaign speeches. Remember, the national elections were forthcoming in May last year, so they used the they invoked Pakistan 19 times. While the first case was on expected lines from a from a hypernationalistic government, the second case was curious. The second case, as I said, is the standoff on the LOC with China. Despite the widely reported loss of territory by India in the military standoff with China in summer this year, the Modi government and, 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 and the death of 1916 Indian soldiers, I'm forgetting that. Anyway, the Modi government refused to acknowledge the extent of the threat. Mr. Modi said, and I quote, no one entered Indian territory, no Indian post were taken over by anyone. In fact, he did not even mention China by name in his speech. So Mr. Modi made sure that he made no military commitments against China so as to avoid the commitment trap. Threats were made by other leaders eventually, but not followed up, but that didn't matter because 
the leader, uh, which is Mr. Darendra Modi as the prime minister, did not make any commitments, and because there was no, and there was no question of therefore backing down from that threat. So consider this: between June, again bean counting, between June and October this year, China was hardly used to by the BJP leaders in their public utterances, despite territorial laws. It was invoked just four times, as opposed to 70, 19 times between February 2019 and June 2019 after the Pulwama terror attack. What is even more interesting is that Pakistan was invoked seven times during the election campaign speeches by the uh, BJP leaders in the month, in, in, in the last month, the month of October 2020 alone. So there is an ongoing situation with China but China's name is taken four times. There's a non, there is no ongoing situation with Pakistan, nothing out of the ordinary, and yet Pakistan's name is taken seven times this year. The party also focused, um, uh, party also used a set of diversionary tactics to offset the audience cost, audience cost in India. Um, say, for, for example, focusing on other things, Kashmir, Pakistan, anti-nationalists, etc. Uh, it argued that those accusing the government of giving into China, giving that India gave into China, India surrendered before China, are actually denigrating the memory of the slain soldiers. And this is, a, this is an argument that uh, the BJP government has been using in its campaign speeches in Bihar, because the soldiers who were killed from the Bihar regiment. Um, but I think most importantly, a narrative was created to show uh, that the reputation of the country was reputation of the country was not damaged. China is, uh, for example, the argument went, went like this. Um, China is alone today. The international community is with India. And therefore, at the end of the tussle with China, India has come out victorious. Um, there, was, there were also arguments that there were many Chinese casualties on the Chinese side. So at the end of the day, and there is, of course, nobody has captured in the territory, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a certain amount of um, 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 narrative uh, building and for this, this sort of takes me to directly to the issue of narrative building and foreign policy by the Bharatiya Janata Party government today. So at the heart, if you, actually, if you actually look at the theory, at the heart of the audience course theory is the feeling of the citizens that their leader has damaged the nation's honor by backing down, right? So if the feeling of the loss, feeling about the loss of honor is key, what needs to be done is to manage the popular perception or popular feeling about what has happened, not the material facts on the ground. That's exactly what the BJP has done. So one, the loss of territory was denied. denied. So the material facts on the ground were completely denied. Reciprocal casualties on the Chinese side was played up. The party's spin masters were deployed to argue that the government stood up to the Chinese and that the Congress leaders were close to the Chinese and that the Congress government had lost a lot more territory or had lost territory earlier while they were in power in 2013. Uh, for Modi's strongman image was played up uh, in a major way. A government also ensured that media reporting on the issue was uh, skewed in a major way. Uh, and finally, opposition's or the opposition's communication skills and narrative management simply couldn't match that of the government. Um, now, briefly about the framing of threats, as it were. Um, as I said earlier, strategic and national security decisions in India are increasingly taken based on their domestic audience course in India. Uh, decisions on how to frame threats, what to call a threat, and how threats are to be addressed are dictated by domestic political considerations today, not on the basis of material facts, objective evidence, or strategic interests for that matter. Framing and shaping the media narrative gains significance because much of the population is not focused on objective fact-finding or fact-based reporting or analysis, but on how it is framed. So friendly media, tens of thousands of WhatsApp groups, friendly, friendly social media platforms such as, say, uh, uh, allegedly uh, the WhatsApp, uh, etc., help the government create such framing and narrative. Um, so you don't need to really focus on the material reality or the material objective facts on the ground. 
but just focus on the framing of it, because that's what people are going to focus on at the end of the day. So, um, like in the securitization theory, uh, who does the framing and how it is done um, um, are also important uh, in the whole dynamics of the domestic politicization of uh, uh, foreign policy. For example, soon after the Mumbai uh, terror attacks the, in, in, in 2008, the Congress party went on to win the Maharashtra elections. The opposition framing the narrative about Congress's failure in Mumbai did not succeed. Put differently, BJP's use of Pakistan wasn't very successful in, dem in domestic electoral terms in 20 2008. Uh, the leadership was not strong enough to do that. But Mr. Modi's use of Pakistan after Balakot, the BJP's use of Pakistan after Balakot was exceptionally successful. Uh, so who does the framing also matters. Modi's ability to undermine the opposition's framing of the debacle at the hands of the China, at the hands of China, has also been very successful. So today it is widely recognized that India has lost territory, but the passage of time and the absence of a narrative about the strong narrative about the government's failure have also ensured that there is there are no audience calls on the government. So what really are some of the implications um, um, of the domestic politicization of foreign policy? Um, I've, I've, I've sort of uh, I've taken you through what I think um, are, are, are uh, the tools and the strategies used by the current government uh, to offset domestic political costs um, um, or um, um, domestic political costs when it comes to foreign policy decision making. Um, I used one case to show the Pulwama uh, Balakot or the Pakistan case to show um, that the, uh, the, the case of Pakistan was used in order to make domestic political gains. Um, uh, the, 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 I used the China example or the LAC example to show how the government used framing and, and denial uh, in order to offset domestic political cause uh, for not acting tough uh, against uh, um, an alleged intruder, as it were. Now, what are the implications of this sort of a a uh, very high amount of domestic politicization of foreign policy in India. Um, I think it is, uh, to, to be fair, uh, it is important to admit that in this age of social media and mass communication, there is no way really to avoid domestic politicization of uh, foreign policy. So being cognizant of the domestic political implications of foreign policy behavior in the age of mass communication and social media is undesirable. Um, 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 so no, no, not being cognizant is undesirable. I mean, that, that's, that's a fact that I think that's something that we need to address. Um, having said that, uh, I think it is important for us to try and um, tease out what the implications of such domestic politicization um, are in, in a country like India. Um, may I also say that uh, domestic politics can often be used creatively to seek concessions while negotiating, to use an insight, say, for example, from uh, Robert Putnam's two-level games. Uh, now, let me give you an example how um, domestic policy can be or was used by the Indian government to seek concessions while negotiating. Uh, for instance, the Manmohan Singh government uh, during the 2000s um, had used domestic political costs to seek and gain concessions during negotiations with the Americans on the nuclear deal. Um, I hope I hope I'm audible. Um, the, however, this has not happened in the case of Mr. Modi or the BJP government because using domestic politics in order to seek concessions from your counterpart interlocutor requires that the negotiator playing requires the negotiator playing on his domestic vulnerability. Now, being vulnerable or showing vulnerability is something that doesn't go with Mr. Modi's persona or the BJP's political culture. Uh, so while domestic politics can actually be used for uh, national uh, interests, uh, that requires a certain amount of playing it, playing, playing uh, one's vulnerability to one's advantage. But with a strongman image, that is not something that, that you can do. Um, 
the current style of domestic politicization of foreign policy also insists that this is one of the implications that I've been I've been talking about. Uh, the current style of domestic politicization of foreign policy also instills a winner takes all mentality in the ruling dispensation, thereby shrinking the domestic space for consensus building. Uh, what do I mean by winner takes all mentality? Now, looking similar to the opposition. Now, if you build consensus with your opposition, if you build consensus, a consensus across party lines, um, then you're going to look similar to the opposition. You're going to look like the opposition. Uh, there's no difference between you and the opposition. That doesn't, that doesn't help the government in the eyes of its core support base. Uh, because the core support base think that the things the thinks that the BJP is a party with a difference. That's actually one of their slogans. But looking different um, uh, makes a, looking difference does win um, uh, the BJP some brownie points. So um, BJP makes it a point uh, that it does not create a uh, consensus-based uh, foreign policy agenda. It makes sure that uh, it sort of. Uh, pushes the opposition to the corner and, and sort of uh, takes all the um, credit for foreign policy um, making as it were. Um, so why make consensus and look like the opposition when you can get all the political advantage by pushing your, your own partisan agenda? So this kind of domestic politicization of foreign policy makes consensus building, consensus building tough and democratization of foreign policy making hard to achieve. Now, whether or not democratization of foreign policy making um, uh, is a good thing is a completely uh, different debate altogether. In a uh, uh, in a deeply divided polity, uh, if one were to sort of uh, um, have a referendum on foreign policy issues, whether or not we should use um, uh, military force against uh, Pakistan to liberate uh, um, POK and Gilgit Baltistan, um, you know, the, the, the survey might actually or a friend might actually throw up uh, surprises for you. So um, it's a different uh, uh, debate altogether whether or not democratization of foreign policy making is a good thing. But, uh, uh, but, but in general, I think more discussions, more consensus building on foreign policy is a good idea. But if uh, with this kind of a uh, uh, skewed um, um, environment uh, of domestic politicization of foreign policy, such consensus building is tough and such democratization of foreign policy making is also tough. If anything, this process makes the opposition relevant, irrelevant and decision making uh, more centralized. Now, um, I did talk about the commitment trap earlier. Uh, but I think uh, uh, this sort of a uh, foreign policy uh, uh, making that is domestically focused or domestic, domestically focused foreign policy making or domestic politicization of foreign policy is not actually without its commitment traps. Um, uh, this kind of domestic politicization of foreign policy leads to the leadership uh, to a commitment trap as well as it binds its hands when external circumstances demand a change in behavior. I mean, today you have a government uh, in India that uh, uh, uses a certain aggressive language when it comes to uh, national security, when it comes to defense policy, when it comes to foreign policy. Um, uh, and, and to my mind, using that aggressive language, using that zero-sum language is also engaging in a certain commitment trap um, of a certain kind. Uh, for instance, if there is um, an opportunity tomorrow to have a rapprochement with Pakistan, um, um, would the government be able to do it? Uh, imagine this, today India has a certain two-front situation uh, and for a very long time the Indian strategists strategist have been talking about a two-front situation uh, that we would eventually face and, and today uh, that prophecy has come through. You have a two-front situation on the LAC and the, on, on the LOC, on the line of control. Uh, so the uh, uh, national interest, in my opinion, uh, would demand that the government of India tries to uh, ease up one front and sort of reach out to reaches out to Pakistan and, and uh, tell the Pakistani side, let us have a certain rapprochement. Now, is that possible under the current circumstances? You have vilified Pakistan. Um, you have created such a domestic political narrative about. Of Pakistan today in the country, that uh, tomorrow it would be, even if the situation demands, even if national interest demands, even if there is an opportunity to create that rapprochement with Pakistan, 
the Indian government would find it very, very difficult to do that. Now, let me give you another example. The, uh, the, the Prime Minister Modi uh, visited Pakistan um, on an impromptu visit in, in December 2015. On his way back from Kabul, and he visited Lahore and met Nawaz Sharif uh, for a family function, etc. Now, the amount of brickbats brick that the Prime Minister received for that visit from his own hardcore group in India, uh, support base in India, uh, the BJP RSA support base in India was unbelievable. Um, now, if that would be the case in 2015, in 2020, things have things have only become the domestic, the Indian domestic discourse on Pakistan has only vitiated further. So even if an opportunity presents itself tomorrow, it will be difficult for the Modi government to um, uh, take that opportunity. Um, so I think uh, this is a major commitment trap, and that comes with the domestic politicization of foreign policy. And finally, I think. Um, if, if there is a certain um, uh, unwanted amount of domestic politicization or foreign policy, this also sort of, sort of de leads to difficulties, major difficulties in conflict resolution and, and peace building. Uh, peace building requires giving concessions. Peace building requires um, uh, long, um, stretched out negotiations. Now, you, you can't have uh, such um, long negotiations with Pakistanis, or say, for example, even though it's not a foreign policy issue with the Kashmiri separatists, uh, you can't be seen as giving any concession to anybody. Um, so, because doing uh, doing so uh, would, uh, uh, you know, somehow uh, uh, damage the strongman image that this government has created. So, I think not just uh, the issue of commitment trap, uh, but also there is the problem of, uh, um, um, you know, this also lands uh, the government in a difficult spot uh, as far as conflict resolution, undertaking uh, a process of conflict resolution and peace building um, uh, is concerned within the country and uh, with its uh, uh, neighbors. I think I have taken enough time. Um, I will leave it at that and I'll be happy to take uh, um, some questions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Habimon. Um, so I, I can't see any questions coming through at the moment. Um, it may be because our moderator needs to approve them. Claire, I'm not sure if that's you, if you could. Uh, I can't see any questions at all, but I do have one of my own. Um, so you've set out wonderfully in, in this situation um, with China, of course, how we have uh, a leader or a ruling party with a strongman stance, um, who, which then falls into a commitment trap, really, whereby, you know, action should, in theory, need to be taken if there is a serious threat to national security. And it seems the way to solve this, as you very clearly laid out, is to um, create a narrative that suggests that there is no problem. There is really no major national security issue. Um, and in fact, um, I suppose co-opt a, a really large number of individuals into sustaining that narrative. So it's not really just the media, is it? It must be also the armed forces. It must be individuals uh, in the bureaucracy, um, in the foreign service. Probably a number of individuals who for a very long time um, have been watching this happening and feeling quite frustrated by it. So I suppose my question is, where are the weak points in this edifice which holds up this narrative? Um, and do you see any likelihood of anyone on, on the official side um, sort of breaking uh, with this, uh, breaking this edifice in any way? Thank you, Kate. I think I think that's an interesting question. I mean, um, as you as you correctly pointed out, it is not uh, in a country like India um, where you have a lot of uh, agencies, institutions. It's a vibrant democracy. You have a very very um, activist media, as it were. In a country like India, to spin a narrative like this, uh, where you have a, a real situation with the Chinese, where according to most uh, reports, the Chinese have. 
um, occupied the uh, what is considered to be the Indian territory on a contested line of actual control. It is not easy to spin that narrative and sell that narrative. So one actually looks at the situation with a certain amount of surprise and, and, and disbelief uh, to see how did this happen? I mean, you know, um, uh, usually when there is a cover-up uh, by a government in Delhi, there are all kinds of leaks, there are all kinds of uh, alternative uh, um, uh, uh, narratives coming out, but none whatsoever. I mean, at this point of time, what you basically have are a few leaks from, I would say, from the from the government to uh, media groups, um, uh, and, and some of the media groups are actually talking about it. But the, the the reality is that even the traditionally um, activist media uh, groups in India are not very keen on taking a line that is not necessarily in line with uh, the narrative that is peddled by the government. So I think if you look at the last uh, uh, six years from 2014 onwards, you would see the dominoes have fallen one after the other. So it's um, you have the media, you have the judiciary to some extent, you have uh, the institutions, opinion makers, um, seemingly um, fantastic analysts uh, who, who in the past have gone, gone with evidence and the facts on the ground and have, have done fantastic analysis are today very, very careful or very scared perhaps to take a line that is not uh, in support of the government. So I think I think this this is not easy to uh, weave. A, it is not easy to weave a narrative of this kind, and and probably it was more difficult during the first term of the government. But I think it's become far uh, far easier today, and I think it's only going to get more easy for the uh, government to sort of create a narrative and sell it um, to its. So you know you may have a you may have an elite group in Delhi and um, in the in the circuit who think that oh this is. Uh, this is not the reality, but that doesn't make any difference. What matters is what people believe, and what 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 people believe is what is carefully choreographed and sort of fed to uh, the larger population as a way. Thank you very much. Um, I've managed to uh, have some questions feeded through in the chat. Uh, the Q and A box is not working for me, but the, the questions are with me nonetheless. So I have a couple I'll pose to you. Um, the first one is, how is Indian foreign policy likely to shift with a Biden-Harris administration? Um, will it be a tougher road and how is that likely to play out? Um, perhaps we can link that to more to the subject matter of your talk today. Like, uh, do you want to take, uh, me to take that question and then yes, go to the next? Yes, please. Uh, sure. Yeah, sure, take that one and I'll, I'll gather the rest. But um, I think there are there are going to be changes and continuities. Um, as far as the continuity is concerned, there is no question that the um, American establishment, the national security establishment, uh, the political establishment, the American Congress, they are all positively disposed towards India um, in in in, uh, in 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 several ways. Uh, there is a certain bipartisan um, uh, consensus in the United States of improving its relationship with China. There is no question about that. I think the United States looks at India, uh, especially with the, uh, the the coinage of Indo-Pacific and the re-emergence of Quad, as it were, uh, there, there's a lot more focus on India uh, to improve defense ties. Um, and, and of course, there is there is a sale of weapons, that is, and the other. Um, so I think I think there, the, there is no question that uh, the, there will be a lot of continuity uh, in the larger national security uh, political space, as it were. But having said that, I would also say um, that there will also be, because the uh, Biden-Harris administration um, comes with the uh, democratic baggage uh, about, uh, you know, quote unquote baggage about human rights, about the traditional focus on Kashmir, etc., and peace in the region as it were. Um, I think there will be some, um, uh, you know, focus on human rights in Kashmir and, and uh, you know, dealing with the Pakistanis um, in, a, uh, in, in, in a dialogue process, etc., etc. Uh, to my mind, the, as far as the United States of America is concerned, the bigger threat, of course, is China. Um, so the advice from the administration in Washington would be that, uh, um, you know, settle your differences with uh, the Pakistanis. Um, you know, bring, bring a certain amount of uh, uh, normalcy to Kashmir and focus on China. China is a big threat. Um, uh, so I think, I think much of this is going to remain the same, uh, but there will be some uh, pushback on the question of, I think, uh, uh, Kashmir, Pakistan and human rights as it were. Mm. Thank you for that. 
Um, another question here from uh, James uh, says, uh, how is the border dispute with Nepal framed by the BJP? And is this an issue that can score points domestically for them? You know, uh, interestingly, um, if it were to be the Congress government that had faced uh, this kind of a situation with Nepal, where Nepal, one, has uh, clearly um, swung towards the Chinese side in many ways. And secondly, there is a um, cartographic aggression. Uh, unilaterally, you have the Nepalese government, at least from an Indian point of view, uh, the Nepalese government has changed its, um, um, its, its, its map uh, and has included uh, territories which, uh, at least from an Indian point of view, um, are not really uh, final, uh, are contested. Uh, so this would have been used by the BJP government, uh, BJP opposition to denigrate the Congress government had the Congress been in power. But unfortunately, uh, or rather interestingly, uh, this is not really a big, um, uh, uh, big, big, big dispute at this point of time or major contestation in, 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 in the in the Indian uh, domestic politics at this point of time. There isn't too much focus on uh, what is happening between Nepal and um, uh, India. And even if there is um, uh, some um, focus on what's happening between Nepal and India or what's happening between India and its neighborhood in general, uh, the BJP is able to simply ignore uh, that and move on. Um, you know, as if to say that we have bigger uh, issues to deal with. We have China to deal with. We have Indo-Pacific to deal with. Um, these are small issues and that will be taken care of. Or uh, it's the opposition that uh, keeps crying foul at all, point of, at all points of time. So, you know, that is, that is to be ignored. So there is this aggressive tendency to simply ignore the, uh, the the alternative narrative as it were and, and move on and that seems to be succeeding um, there isn't a, um, a strong counter narrative um, to the bjp or a, there isn't a strong opposition to um, uh, the the government and its policies towards uh, uh, the neighborhood in nepal in particular and and that is that is simply surprising so um, that's that's where we are unfortunately however Thank you. Um, we have a question here asking what the drivers are for the domestic polit politicization of foreign policy. But I think you actually covered that in the first sort of 10 minutes of your talk. So we might tweak that question slightly and ask which kinds of foreign policy issues become domestically politicized and which ones don't. And do you think that this has changed actually in the last sort of, you know, five or so years, five, six years? Right, right. Um, you know, as I said, um, from the 1990s onwards, we have had a lot of um, um, activism, foreign policy activism uh, from the part of the Indian states, the constituent units, as it were, for a variety of reasons. As I said, again, the Indian constitution simply does not allow um, any formal activism by the uh, Indian states. And yet the uh, Indian states have managed to play a certain amount of role in pushing uh, the union to do their bidding, uh, you know, but I think that that depends on a variety of factors. For example, if you have a coalition government in uh, Delhi, um, say go back to uh, 2000, for example, when uh, the NDA was in, UPA was in power, um, India-Sri Lanka policy uh, was a great deal influenced by the uh, Tamil parties in, in, in uh, Tamil Nadu, um, um, India's uh, yeah, policy towards the United States, especially the uh, nuclear deal uh, that was um, um, uh, interfered with by the um, the left left parties in India that at that point of time, in fact, the um, uh, the government was almost about to fall, but the Samajwadi Party came in and rescued uh, the government at that point of time. Um, so, barring some of these exceptions, uh, traditionally you have had the um, Indian states dealing with uh, foreign economic policy or border relations, uh, relations with neighboring countries, border states having these relations with neighboring countries, uh, with very little strategic or security content, as it were. Now that is change. Um, today, um, you, are, you are talking about domestic politicization of foreign policy um, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the national security and uh, strategic fields, as it were, the main um, national security and, 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 and strategic fields, as it were. Um, it serves the BJP's purpose to do that. Uh, it, it sort of uh, gains them uh, a certain amount of uh, support domestically in their, in their sort of, uh, uh, um, within their core support group. But may I also say that this is, also, this is again, very selective. Um, 
you don't see that kind of domestic politicization of, say, India-U.S. relations, um, except uh, when there are high-profile visits uh, of Mr. Modi to United States or Trump to Ahmedabad, etc., etc., or, say, domestic politicization of Indo-EU ties or India-Russia ties. No, it's basically... Uh, Pakistan that we are talking about. Uh, it's it's sometimes a little bit of United States, but mostly Pakistan. So it's selective in, in that sense. Even if you want to politicize, um, even if the opposition wants to politicize China um, and the standard with China, the ruling party will hit back and say that, uh, you know, national security is being politicized by these guys. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, a very careful strategy of picking and choosing what suits the uh, government and the ruling dispensation as well. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll finish with three last questions, if that's okay. We'll bunch them together. Um, and when you address them, um, that will conclude our session. So we have a question here from Kira Huhu. Um, she is asking, uh, she's saying that the nationalist narratives make sense for a party like the BJP. Um, but what she finds puzzling is the recent co-option of um, liberal democratic narratives. So, for example, the Modi government stressing support for France and the principles of secular liberalism and free speech in the wake of the terror attacks. Um, it, she's asking, is this uh, another way of expressing Islamophobia through other means or are there domestic audience benefits uh, to feigning support for liberal principles on the international stage? Packing no punches there, Kira. Um, uh, we've got a question from Paul Flather. Uh, which is asking whether these changes, um, uh, presumably referring to the, um, uh, the domestic politicization of foreign policy, whether these changes are embedded now or can the, cha the situation change um, somewhat after the strongman approach of Modi? And a question from Sharani Jagdiani asking um, whether the future of Indian foreign policy is likely to be affected by the decline of democracy and um, the declining domestic checks and balances on the current government. That's quite a lot to deal with. <laughs> Great question. Thank you. Thanks, um, um, Kira. Hi. Um, I think that's that's a very uh, interesting question. The espousing of uh, liberal causes by a um, uh, hyper-right-wing uh, government in India. Um, so, in fact, I I tweeted the other day um, asking, um, uh, you know, w w what is it that uh, the government or the right-wing uh, party in India is trying to do? Um, are they basically saying that it is all right to um, uh, make create cartoons of gods and um, uh, prophets, um, um, or uh, what? What is the argument? Because if the argument is that it is all right to um, uh, create cartoons of uh, uh, gods and prophets, then that is not something that would be acceptable uh, within India, right? I mean, if someone someone were to, for example, uh, create a cartoon of uh, Krishna or um, Ram in India, I'm not so sure that's going to be taken very uh, lightly um, or favorably by the Indian, um, the right wing uh, or the BJP for that matter. And yet this very government would support um, the French government's actions um, of not sort of going against uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, prophet's cartoons as it were. Now, uh, what, what this tells me is that now is it is it Islamophobia? I would say um, this is more like you are getting a, a stick to beat the Pakistanis uh, with, right? I mean, because Imran Khan was very active um, on Twitter calling out. Uh, the French government and um, sort of, you know, um, calling the French, uh, uh, calling out the French president personally. So here is here is a here is a weapon that the uh, BJP has or the Indian government has to sort of uh, uh, push Imran Khan further to the corner. Number one and number two, it is also um, adding to the general narrative in India that the BJP has that uh, the you know the Muslims are uh, backward. The Muslims need to uh, be more liberal, um, and this is a bunch of uh, uh, people that are ultra-conservative and are not necessarily uh, very secular. 
But if the same yardstick uh, were to be applied to the BJP or to the uh, Hindu right wing in India, I'm sure they would, they would be very unhappy with that. So it's a very, um, you know, um, opportunistic uh, um, sort of an uh, argument. Uh, this is not uh, based on any liberal principle as it were. Uh, because if it is based on a liberal principle, uh, you'd be happy if this applies to you as well. If somebody made a cartoon of Ram or Krishna, you didn't have a problem with that. But you'd have a problem with that, right? Uh, remember the Amma Hussein um, 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 sort of um, episodes earlier on. Um, so I don't think this is this is technically speaking espousing liberal cause. This is basically using um, the stick to beat the Pakistanis and sort of push back um, the the Muslim population within India. Um, so the uh, the second question is basically the domestic politicization of India. Uh, will this continue in future, or uh, will this change if uh, if there if there is a new government, a liberal government, there's a uh, uh, Congress plus uh, left uh, government in India? Um, I think I think there are certain. Uh, of fundamental changes uh, that have already um, um, sort of happened. Uh, fundamental transformations have happened, for instance. L let me give you an example. Um, the, let's take the Kashmir case, for instance. Um, in, 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 in August 2019, the government of India took two decisions. One, they withdrew the special status that was given to Kashmir traditionally. Number, number two, uh, um, uh, divided the state into two union territories, which is withdrew the statehood as well. If there is a Congress government tomorrow, will that Congress government return the special status to Jammu and Kashmir? I don't think so. Uh, I think you know even the even even many many members of the Congress party in August last year supported this particular decision. Uh, now that's a you could say that's a technically domestic uh, political issue, and yet this has a certain uh, foreign policy angle to it. So I think. Um, say the the relationship with Pakistan, for instance. Um, if, if 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 the BJP government does not begin a uh, conversation with Pakistan, and if tomorrow there is a Congress government, uh, will the Congress government be able to begin a new uh, chapter, open a new chapter with the Pakistanis? I'm I'm not so I'm not so sure uh, because the narratives are so domestically so deeply entrenched in the Indian domestic. Uh, political um, uh, space, as it were, it would be difficult for a new government to sort of uh, uh, say tomorrow that you know foreign policy is foreign policy, domestic politics is domestic politics. We are going to keep the two up separate. I'm not so sure that's possible. Uh, that I think age is gone. So the only what's the way out? The only way out is sort of uh, uh, create alternative narratives. Uh, the only way is to sort of uh, put facts forward, uh, put, put fact-based analysis uh, and sort of create counter-narratives to the um, narratives that are peddled by the ruling party. That's the only way out. Uh, reversing uh, the domestic politicization, I don't think, is, is an option at all. Uh, the third question was basically the future of Indian foreign policy, given the uh, uh, decline of, uh, you know, the uh, traditional values in the Indian uh, domestic political system, etc. Uh, and I think, I think, I seriously think it has uh, uh, several implications. For example, um, you know, let me give you an example. The uh, recent visit of uh, the uh, Indian Foreign Secretary, Army Chief, um, etc. to Myanmar. Um, five years ago, um, if the Indian leadership visited Myanmar or the Myanmari leadership visited India, there would have been questions in the media, in the strategic community about the Rohingyas, about human rights issues in, in Myanmar, about democracy in Myanmar, not a question asked. In fact, I, I must say that I, I, I did a program for The Wire and it's online. Um, there was very little content about uh, human rights or, 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 or democracy in Myanmar. It was all about Myanmar, China's uh, uh, Indo-Pacific and, and strategic uh, uh, issues. So the focus, the traditional focus India has had on, uh, you know, supporting democracies as it were, or say um, um, uh, promoting human rights, um, giving refuge to the persecuted in the neighborhood. Um, all of that is going to be a thing of the past. And, and that, I think, is directly related to the moral decline um, in, the, in, the, in the domestic space in India. Now, 
uh, the BJP could turn around and say, hey, the liberals are opposing our uh, 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 the, the citizenship, citizenship, citizenship amendment law, um, where we are trying to give uh, citizenship to the persecuted minorities in the neighborhood. But wait a minute, uh, you're discriminating by doing that. Uh, so the, the political objective is very clear. Uh, Muslims have to be kept out. That's the argument. Um, so it's not about supporting the um, uh, non-Muslims. It's about more about keeping the Muslims out. So I think I think there is um, uh, there is going to be um, the future of, of India's foreign policy will deeply be impacted by the uh, quote unquote moral decline um, in the domestic space in India. There's no there's no doubt about that. Thank you so much, Dr. Abhimanyu Jacob, for this absolutely incredibly rich presentation. I mean, I really appreciated personally your masterful analysis of the diversification in the producers and consumers of India's foreign policy since the 1990s. And you walked us through two very powerful case studies. Um, and really, uh, you've led, to, led us to quite a sobering prognosis uh, for the future of India's national security without these kinds of democratic uh, checks and balances. Your camera's gone a bit blurred, but I have been admiring your uh, door handles behind you, which look like a pair of dolphins swimming up the doors. They're much more impressive than my sorry uh, door handle here. So when you spoke of Modi's uh, winner takes all mentality, um, I, I think you have definitely taken all in the in the contest of door handles and in so much more. Thank you so much. Um, we've Thank you. Such a pleasure. And we're looking forward to hearing from you again and again. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.